after the service and you can connect with him a little bit more. But we thought it would be valuable to have him uh, in, our, in our service uh, speaking to us. He's a great theologian, has some great words to say to us about, uh, about our identity and what that looks like um, for us today. Let's pray. Uh, after I'm done praying, there's going to be a video that kind of explains this cartoon a little bit more. We've shown the first part of the video, so it's kind of picking up partway through, but it'll give you a better background to uh, what we're talking about here this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, think back to last week when we celebrate your resurrection from the dead, your victory over sin and over death, and how you are the great victor, how you are the one who uh, we can find our identity in looking back and now and, and looking to the future. And Jesus, we, we give you praise because you are the king. And we gather together as your believers, as your followers today, to learn and to encourage and to bless one another and to lift you high and exalted through praise and singing. And God, we, uh, we love you. We thank you for... Uh, this congregation, what you've been doing in our lives, and God, we pray that you are, by the power of your spirit, you would be speaking to us this morning, opening our hearts and opening our minds to your words, in the name of Jesus, amen. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles. But here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. 
So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges, their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says, it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and, uh, and to be able to share into, as part of this service. As, as uh, was indicated, my name is Jeremy Martini. I'm, I'm at uh, Horizon. It's, it's soon to be your, your next door neighbor. Uh, we're, we're just anxiously waiting for all that to happen and we're looking forward to, to some of the great things that can, that can come out of that relationship. Um, I've been here in Saskatoon for about 10 years now. I'm originally from Alberta, uh, but came here via Scotland, where I 
where I had gone to, to pursue my studies and absolutely loved it uh, over, in, over in Scotland. My son was born there. We went there. My wife and I went there as, uh, as two and came back as three. And, uh, and it was just an amazing opportunity to, to live there. I don't know if any of you have ever lived somewhere other than Canada, but, uh, but it, was, it was exciting. It was great to be there. And, and uh, it's one of those things that when, you're, when you go somewhere else, you, you really start to get a sense uh, that, you know, we may look a lot alike, but uh, there's, some, there's some differences. So we got off the plane in Scotland, and, you know, we left at whatever, middle of the night, and get there in the middle of the day kind of a thing. And we're excited. I mean, I'm going to embrace this, and I'm, I'm thirsty, and I think I'm going to go get a, I'm going to get a proper Scottish drink. I, I mean, like, you know, like a, a fizzy drink sort of thing, as they would say. Don't worry. But anyway, uh, so I go into the grocery store, or Sainsbury's, or Morrison, something like this, and we we go in there, and, uh, and they, everything in Scotland is, is like blackcurrant. Like blackcurrant is the berry fruit of choice. Everything is blackcurrant. And so I go in, and, and they have this, you know, this wee bottle, this, this little thing of, of blackcurrant juice. And I think that looks good, but ne- it's 50p, 50 pence. But next to it, for 75p, 75 pence, is this gigantic bottle of blackcurrant. Well, why would I get the little 50p one when I can get the big one for 25p more, right? So I get this big bottle of blackcurrant juice and walking outside my first day in Scotland, I'm going to drink with the Scots drink, well, the good, you know, the other stuff, uh, and, uh, and have the blackcurrant juice, and I take a drink, and uh, my goodness, this is horrid. Like, it's absolutely horrid. I could barely choke it down. I think these Scots are made of stout stuff, my goodness. So I, I'm going to muscle through because I'm in Scotland. So I, have two, I get about this much of the bottle. I just, I can't do it. Well, then as I'm there a little bit longer, I, I come to understand that in Scotland, they have something called diluting juice. And diluting juice means you put about this much of the the syrup into your cup and the rest you put in with water. You don't drink this stuff straight. So it was, it, was a, it was an education there on, on day one in Scotland, and we had a number of these sorts of experiences, like the first time we were invited out for supper. I mean, you know, you're going for lunch afterwards, or someone might invite you for supper. So they say, oh, great, yeah, I'd love to come for supper. Uh, what time should we come? Ah, well, you come about half eight then. Half eight meaning 8.30. Saying, okay, well, we usually eat supper a little bit earlier in Canada. We used to eating about five o'clock, six o'clock maybe, but half eight, okay, well, we'll be hungry, but we'll show up. And you get there very hungry at half eight, and they have a little bowl of crisps, potato chips, and maybe a couple of, uh, a couple of pastries, and always tea, a big pot. You think, okay, well, that's not much of a, a supper. Like, is this the order? Well, as it turns out in Scotland, uh, supper is like a wee snack that you have in the evening. Now, if you want to get invited for supper, th- then you really want to get invited for tea. So, so tea is supper, and, and supper is tea, and it's... You know, you got to get these things. You got to get these things worked out. But this was this was our lives. But it was fantastic and it was good. But I have to say that when I lived in Scotland for three years, I was never more Canadian than when I lived there. I was never more aware of being Canadian, especially when the Scots would say, "Are you Americans? You're all." The-. I'm not American. I'm not. Anyway, and then I had one friend who was a solicitor, which is a lawyer, by the way. Uh, one friend who was a, a solicitor there in in Scotland and. He'd always give me that, and I'd say, oh, you English are all the same, and then that would end that discussion. But anyway, he's, it, it's a reality. When you're, when you're away somewhere, 
you become acutely aware of, of your own identity, who you are and how you behave and how it's different. And it's just, it, the reverse is the same. The Scots, the Scots' official language, their old language, is Gaelic, which is not, I'm not mispronouncing, in Ireland it's Gaelic, and in Scotland it's Gaelic. Well, as it happens, there are, there are more Gaelic speakers in Canada than there are in Scotland, because when, when the Scots immigrated over to Canada, uh, on the East Coast, they preserved that part of their culture so that this Gallic group still exists. And when they want to teach Gallic in Scotland, they have to recruit from Canada to come back to teach the Scots how to speak their own language because they preserved their culture. They were in a new place, and they, they hunkered down in a way that just disappeared. And, and you've been in this series here at the church, this opportunity in exile, that's really been talking about that. What does it mean to be a people in exile? What does it mean to be a people that are speaking in and, and living out and, and acting, in, acting out their lives in a world that's foreign to them. And, and I've had an opportunity to be here uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I was here to see uh, Vi Petka. She was doing her class. Vi Petka, is she in here? I know she's doing worship. She, there's Vi. Vi. Vi graduated yesterday from the college. She is now a graduate, um, which means, as I let her know in the last service, that means that She's ob obligated to do a bunch more work around the church now. So, uh, but do congratulate Vi, yes. Uh, but this, this whole idea of being in exile and being, and being foreign, this is, this is part of what you've been looking at. And 1 Peter in particular uh, is a book that's all about this. 1 Peter is all about who we are and how we behave. Who we are and how we behave as a people who are, are foreigners. And, and so we just saw the, the video there, and in the video it kind of unpacked a little bit uh, the big picture, but I'll give a, a simpler big picture here than that one, and really you can almost divide First Peter into two chunks. First Peter is a letter, as it said in the video, that was written to a bunch of different churches all around, um, and, and all these churches, but it, it, it really focused, you can break it down into two parts. The first part is just the first 12 verses, and the first 12 verses focuses on who? Who are we? And gives kind of a theological foundation. And then the whole rest of the letter, this is a, this is a letter that's all about kind of morality and, and how to behave, is telling you how. Now, there's who bits and how bits uh, all throughout, but this is sort of a simple way of, of just dividing it out. And so we want to look at this morning, we're going to look at a first, first little bit of First Peter uh, together. So First Peter, if you, if you have Bibles, I'm just going to have up on the screen just the, just the bits that I'm going to talk about. Uh, so if you want a bit of a fuller look at it, you'll... You'll have to break out your own uh, phones, and uh, or Bible. Does anyone have paper Bibles anymore? Anyway, and I'm, I can't say anything. I'm up here with an iPad. So anyway, so here we are. So First Peter, one, one and two, and and so it starts out there. And he says to the to the chosen exiles of the dispersion, this diaspora, this dispersion, and then he goes on and he lists all of these different regions that this letter is going out to uh, in the dispersion. This is these who have spread out. But he, he identifies, Peter identifies these early Christians as, as exiles. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, he addresses them again as exiles. Beloved, I urge you as aliens, as strangers and exiles. So he addresses them, and, and the first identity clue that we get to these, these people in First Peter is that they're aliens. They're exiles. And aliens and exiles tells us that, that as Christians, 
this letter that's gone out to all the regions, all the regions in this area, all being addressed as aliens and exiles, as speaking to Christians in general, us middle-class Christians here today, this letter still comes to us as, as our Canadian or to our Scottish friends across. Uh, we are all aliens and exiles. Christians are exiles. This is part of who we are. All of us are living in exile. And, and that works. But aliens and exiles tells us not only that, it also tells us something else. When you're called an alien and exile, uh, you're being identified not by what you are so much as by what you are not. If you're being told that you're a foreigner, you're foreign to whatever context you're foreign in. You're a stranger in whatever context you are, you're a stranger in. So, so being alien and exile tells us that we're all exiles, but it also tells us more about what we are not. And Peter's going to go on to describe what, as followers of Jesus, we are not to look like, as well as what we are. And so we're going to take a look at that this morning. Uh, verses 1 and 2, again, going back. Um, let's think about what are we, then, Peter? You're telling us that we are aliens and exiles. What can you tell us about what we are as, as Christians? To the chosen, Peter says, to the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, those of you who are theologically minded are getting worried right now because you're thinking about lunch. You're thinking this guy is going to tackle predestination and free will, and that clock on the wall is ticking down, and we've got lunch plans today. Well, friends, we're, don't worry. We'll, we'll get through it. We'll get through it. Even if I have to keep you all back from your lunch, we'll get through it today. No, we'll, we will get through it. We will tackle a little bit because I think sometimes the, the passages itself, uh, itself unpacks it, but, but Peter definitely identifies these Christians as chosen according to God's foreknowledge. And chapter 2 again, uh, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. What? So we're chosen. Does that mean we're selected by God? Is this about us being selected? Well, why don't we just keep reading in the verse and see if it doesn't unpack something for us. So, as the verse goes on to say, to the chosen exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the Spirit's sanctification, for the purpose of being obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. What about that other chosen verse in chapter 2? You are a chosen race in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you, as alien and strangers, to abstain, don't do, and then a whole list of a bunch of things you're not to do. Uh, conduct yourselves honorably. In, in the New Testament, and we won't get, unpack all the theology, if you, if you really want to get into it, come take a class. But, uh, no, you can come take a class. We have stuff over there. But anyway, we're, we're, we're chosen for a purpose. We're chosen... Uh, we aren't chosen so much as what we are to do is chosen. Beforehand, God has set out. There are certain activities, there are certain ways of behaving that are chosen beforehand. And insofar as we are participating in that, we're part of that, that choice. So God's choice and foreknowledge are about behavior, uh, not about salvation. Now, some of you may want to 
have a theological debate about that, and you can do that on Facebook after the service. Um, I'm not on Facebook, so I won't be able to help you out. Uh, anyway, but this is, this is a way of thinking about it, recognizing that, that really what Peter's after here is behavior. He's after behavior. He says, we're chosen for the purpose of. For the purpose of. All right, so now that's kind of the overview, the first two verses of chapter one. Uh, let's get into this a little bit deeper here. Who? Who are we? And, and these few verses here, these first few verses, really lay the theological foundation for Christian identity. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3 lays the bedrock theological foundation on which our entire Christian identity is to be built. Here's Peter laying it down. This is where we build from. And where we build from is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead initiates a new reality. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is what our entire Christian identity is formed upon. It is the most real reality that Peter can communicate. He's going to say, basically, this, this reality that we're experiencing isn't as real as another reality, and the bedrock foundation on going for this other reality is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the foundation of our identity. That is our starting point. Who we are, says Peter, was already determined by Christ's resurrection. Who we are is set in the past. Who we are is set back with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation point. But Peter frames this in. Peter frames in who we are as followers of Jesus um, by looking ahead as well. So verse 4. And into an inheritance that is imperishable. And now Vi is graduated, and I don't have any other students here. Because what I'm about to say next, this would not go well, you know, with the students. Um, because if you're going to go present at a church, you make sure that you're, you know, communicating appropriately in your slides and that everything has been proofread. Well, I had a great correspondence with Heather, and she was very good to me. She, Are you sure this is the way you want it? Yes. Yes, this is good to go. All right. I have not one but two typos on this slide. So, um, all right. So, all right. What Peter actually says, this is not above you, what Peter actually says is, and into an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, not undefined, all right? I was doing this in an airport, and I'm not very good with technology. Uh, anyway, undefiled and unfading, not unfolding. All right, so... I mean, we could come up with some new theology, but anyway, that's, this, is, this is what Peter says. So, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who we are, says Peter, was the bedrock of it is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This has happened in the past. But who we are is also determined by where we're going. Who we are is also determined by heaven in the future. Something that is yet to come. Largely yet to come. So who we are is built on the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the most real thing that has ever happened in history. And who we are is determined by where we're going, which is an even bigger reality than before. Now, if we look back, uh, look next at, at 1-4 again, and again, we're going to correct the grammar. We're going to correct the typo. All right. And Vi is never going to tell anybody about this. All right, so an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. When you think about what is, what is heaven like? What is heaven? What is, what is the afterlife like? Uh, really, the Bible is frustratingly vague. We really don't know much about it. And what the New Testament authors frequently do is they basically say, well, it's not like this. You see this? This is, well, heaven is, is like this, only not. And which isn't very helpful often. Paul does this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He talks about what is the resurrected body going to be like? And Paul kind of says, well, you know, you see, the, you see that body there? It's decayed. Is it decay? Yeah, well, it's going to be like un, undecay. Thank you, Paul. So anyway, is what they kind of do, and they, and they do this, like literally, they, there's, in Greek, you can just add a, a little a at the beginning, an alpha at the beginning of the word, and it's like our word's un or im. And, and so Paul says, well, the perishable, well, it's going to be imperishable and, 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 and defiled. It's going to be undefiled and, and, and fading. It's going to be unfading. Uh, very helpful. Uh, but really, think about it. It's amazing if you think that the New Testament writers are actually communicating about realities that physicists today already are talking about, the world expanding, the, the universe expanding, but it's also this whole, this whole entropy, the whole world's just fading backwards and going and reverting into, into sort of chaos and, uh, and diminishing. And the New Testament, the biblical story, tells us that, yeah, and the real world is going to undo all that. So, in the biblical language, heaven is often kind of presented as the, as the antidote to, to atrophy. As everything is decaying, well, what is it like? It's like the opposite of that. It's undecaying. You just have to wait and find out what that's like when you get there. So, so this, is, this is it here. So, so this is one part of it. We're, we're determined by what Christ did in the past. We're determined by this undecaying, undefined uh, world of the future. But in the middle of that, in between that, is, is what's happening now here. So look at this, 1 Peter 1.4. You who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You who are now being protected in between these two points, 
in between the resurrected Christ and the heaven that is to come for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A New Testament scholar, Oxford scholar, who, who actually served in, of all places, Edmonton, Alberta, uh, writes this G.B. Caird, I love this quote, which is why I'm giving it to you. Uh, salvation in the New Testament is always a past fact, a present experience, and a future hope. Ask, you know, are you saved? I mean, nobody asks that anymore, but some of you from previous generations, you know, that would have been a question, right? Are you saved? How do you know you're saved? But care to ask, you know, are you saved? The answer would be, I have been saved. I am being saved, and I shall be saved. The three tenses of salvation. I have been saved. Christ has saved me. Christ is currently saving me, and I'm awaiting my salvation at the end. It's, it's like, and nobody does this, I don't think, probably, you're not going to admit it, probably, if you do, but, okay, it's like if you took, you had some money and you invested it in a, put it in a GIC, right, like nobody does that anymore, right, because it doesn't, but, but hypothetically, let's say you, you had a, you put your money into a GIC, and you got a rate of return on that, right, it's a guaranteed rate of return, what, what you get from that rate of return, you're guaranteed whatever it is they said, and they're not, the financial people are getting, well, actually, there's ways around, anyway, just go with the analogy here. Anyway, you're guaranteed that rate of return. Basically, what does it mean to be saved in Christ? Am I, am I saved? How do I know? Do I have assurance of salvation? I tell students, well, you have assurance. If you're in Christ, then, then you're sure. Guaranteed. No matter what happens, you're guaranteed. You have, you have the assurance. Uh, but you, you do got to stick it out to the end because the salvation finally comes due at the end, at the end of time. So salvation is a past fact based on the resurrected Christ, the present experience, the work of Christ now, as he said, you're being protected by the power uh, and a future hope. So we have these three salvations. So here's our identity. Framed in between the resurrected Christ and the coming heaven and the present experience of Christ is going to get us from point A to point B. So that's the who. Let's get to the how. The how First uh, Peter 1.13. So at 1.13, this is where the, the letter shifts to be talking about mor the moral pieces, which goes right to the end of the book. So here's our first real imperative, our first command here. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. I say this is the Martini translation. If my last name is Martini, it's not because of any influence I was under when I was doing the translation here. Uh, the Martini translation here, so, because we want to... We, some of the translations kind of miss, miss this a little bit. But Paul, or Paul, the other guy, Peter. Peter literally says, gird up the loins of your minds. Keeping completely focused. Another translation is being completely sober, which doesn't go with the Martini translation. So anyway, keeping completely sober on the grace brought to you by the unveiling of Christ. What he's really saying here, what he's really saying here is, look, this is it. This is the pinpoint. This is, this is where you got to focus. You can see him. It's almost like a coach in the locker room, right? Double overtime. And he's saying, guys, this is it. I don't care what else happens. This is the gameplay. This is it. You don't deviate. When stuff goes bad over here, it doesn't matter. You come back to this. Hope. Hope for this stuff that's coming. Based on this stuff that's happened. Hope. When you get, when you get wronged and injustice, 
Don't get distracted over here. Hope. When somebody doesn't do what you want, when the government changes things and it's all horrible and the world's all going, this is where you're going. You're not worried about that stuff. You stay focused. You get your mind clear. Your mind's in the game. You don't deviate to the left or the right. Hope. Hope on the grace being brought to you by the unveiling of Christ. The hope, the grace being brought to you here by the unveiling of Christ. He was unveiled and resurrected and he shall return and be unveiled again. That is what determines how we behave. Good Christian behavior is maintained by good Christian belief. You keep the focus. You don't go left or right. That hope is what determines us when we, and we don't get distracted from it. Verse 14 and 15, like obedient children, he goes on to say, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Not ignorance because your mind, right? Your mind has been shifted. Your ignorance no longer applies. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And all the rest of 1 Peter flows out of that. Keeping focused on the hope that is to come and maintaining a holiness. Now, what does it mean to be holy? It means sometimes you're going to look a little bit different in the world around you. And that was no different for Peter's day. That's no different for the earliest Christians. When we compare Roman society with earliest Christianity, we see remarkable differences. So there's, there's a number of comparisons in the next slide here. So in the earliest, in the Roman era, era ironically, we would think, Christians were, were ridiculed and identified as atheists. They were the atheists because they didn't believe in the gods, the whole pantheon of gods. They were considered atheists, and so they were ridiculed for that and shunned. The, the earliest, uh, Ro the Romans all worshipped the emperor, which was good to curry favor with the emperor to get stuff you wanted. It was also good to not get yourself nailed up on a cross. Emperor worship. Emperor, the, the not worshiping the emperor is what led to the persecution of the church for 200 years after the New Testament. It's what got them thrown into the, the lion's den, got them burned at the stake because they refused to worship the emperor. That sign above Jesus' head, the king of the Jews, that was a political statement. He would not worship. This was not emperor worship. Um, public sacrifice against baptism, uh, orgies and drunkenness, Christians introduced temperance in the Lord's Supper. The, the sexually open versus the marriage bed that the Christians introduced. Social status, the gender, ethnic division versus no Jew or Gentile, male, female, slave or free, which would be an important piece to keep in mind as you go forward in 1 Peter in the next chapters where Peter addresses slaves and wives. Uh, infant exposure, instead of, and if you didn't want a child, you just threw them out, put them on the side. The Christians went around and rescued these babies that had been abandoned. And they were ridiculed as baby rescuers. Religion had no moral expectations in it, but in, in Judeo-Christian religion, morality was tied to your belief in God. It wasn't tied to your belief in the gods in the Greek society. Really, we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to Greeks, and an offense to Jews. All to say that Good Christian behavior is often ridiculously, but respectfully, irrelevant. They didn't worship the emperor, but they did all they could to be respectful within that society and 
would be respectful to the point of passively going to their death. So what does this mean for, for us today in Canada? What does this mean for us where we're living a fairly privileged life? I was here a few weeks ago when, when Dale preached, and, uh, and he made this comment that the loss of privilege um, is not persecution. I thought that was great. That really stuck with me. It didn't stick with me in the first service because I couldn't remember what he said exactly, but it's, it's with me now. So, because um, I asked. Uh, anyway, it was great, though. Loss of privilege does not equal uh, persecution, and that's, that's right. So, but, but what do we think about then today as our fairly privileged Christianity? Well, I suggest a few things. First, as Christians in exile, first we have to see ourselves as in exile because we're not there. But we claim to have be built from over here on Christ's resurrection, but we're not yet there. So we're in exile. We're in between. We, this world is not the way it's meant to be. And so we don't expect it to be. But as Christians in exile, we need to recognize, I think, that it's better serve building bridges than walls with others in exile. And that means building bridges with other believers within our believing community so that if you're sitting over there because you can't be bothered and can't stand to sit with the person that's over here, I'm not really looking at anybody in particular, uh, but if you're, if you're sitting there because you can't get along with them, that's a problem. If you're a Christian in exile within this community, you have to live as a body, as one. You need to make the point of living, reconcile lives with one another. Uh, with believers outside our community and with other believing communities, we need to stand together as co-exiles who have our foundation in Christ's resurrection and the hope of heaven. The second thing we can think about as Christians in exile is that our, our social irrelevance testifies to a world that is actually more real than this one. Sometimes we want to be relevant in the church. We want our church to be welcoming to those in the community. Uh, but sometimes the most important thing we can do is to be ridiculously, respectfully irrelevant and be outside. Sometimes we have to be irrelevant to bear witness to something that's more real because we have more to offer than just what's here. And finally, as Christians in exile, we need to keep the focus. We need to keep our head in the game. We need to keep the loins of our mind girded up and know that our hope, our hope is what drives us. Our hope when, it, when the whole world seems to no longer make sense. It's our hope for something more real that keeps us focused and, and in the game. I, I like to call up the worship band and, uh, and thank you so much for your opportunity to share with you this morning.